morning. I'd like you to join me in your Bible in James chapter 1. The exhortation that James gives us in verses 21 to 25 is to be a doer of the word. Some of us see that phrase, doer of the word, and we immediately think, I got to do. And we do religious activity. I got to go to church. I got to do the rituals. I got to do the ceremonies. I got to keep all the rules. We do, we do, we do. And James assumes that's going to be your reaction. And so he mentions the word religion three times in the closing two verses in chapter 1. Notice verse 26. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. You see, James mentions religion because he wants to distinguish between being a doer of the word and being a doer of religion. Religion is used only seven times in the Bible. Religion is the concept of doing what I think God requires. It's a person's answer to the question, what pleases God? And it might interest you to know that every other time it's used in the Bible, it's used in a negative sense. It's from man's perspective. Here's what I think, from my perspective, pleases God. It's used four times in reference to the religion of the Jews, which was a self-righteous religion. 2 Timothy 3.5 speaks of men in the last days, and it says they will hold to a form of godliness, even though they have denied It's power. That's religion. They're holding to the externals, but they don't have the internal. And James uses it in a negative sense twice here. He says at the beginning of verse 26, if anyone thinks he is religious. Let me just give you a clue. If you think you're religious... That's not a very good club to be in. Yeah, I think I'm religious. That's a negative sense. And then he goes on to say that man's religion is what? It is worthless. And when he chooses to use it the one time in Scripture that it's used in a positive sense, he has to qualify it in verse 27 by saying, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God. This is God's perspective on it, and he has to qualify it by saying it is pure and undefiled. In other words, this is true religion as opposed to the impure, the defiled, the false, the worthless, the counterfeits. 
Now, I entitled this message, True Religion. I was hesitant to entitle it that. But when I did, I, I remembered there's a pair of jeans called True Religion. So Matt and I Googled that because we thought, maybe, maybe this is a faith-based company. We found the site, and the founder, Jeffrey Lubell, explained the name this way. He said, there's only one real religion, and that's people, and all the people in the world wear jeans. So that's some people's concept of religion. It's how you dress. You're into denim. The cult of the denim. You know, throughout Scripture, there is a distinction between what man thinks God wants and what God really wants. In the book of Revelation, the false religious system is described as Babylon. That takes us all the way back to the book of Genesis, where they built the Tower of Babel. What was the Tower of Babel? It was man trying to build a a tower that would reach to heaven. That's the concept of man's religion. I will work my way up to God. That's man's religion in contrast to true religion, which is God coming down to man. Just the opposite. Man's religion can be categorized as self-righteousness. God's religion, true religion, is God's righteousness. Self-righteousness is something I earn. God's righteousness is a gift from Him. Man's religion is always external. True religion is internal. That's the point of Jesus' parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25. You remember, five virgins were wise, five were foolish. The foolish virgins maintained their, get this, they maintained their religious virginity. They were set apart unto religion, or in their case, they were set apart unto the bridegroom. So if you ask them, they would say, I am set apart unto Jesus. They were dressed right. They were in the right place. They had their lamps. What didn't they have? They didn't have any oil. So they didn't have any flame. They had the external form without the internal fuel. A couple chapters before that in Matthew 23... Jesus said to the Pharisees who thought they were religious to the nth degree, they were the leaders of the I think I'm religious club. Jesus says to them, you clean the outside of the cup, but inside it's full of filth. You paint the outside of the tomb white, but inside... It has the stench of death. Externals without internals. And the fundamental problem with man's perspective 
is that the Bible says man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. So man's religion is concerned about changing the outward appearance. True religion is concerned about changing the heart. And that's why James doesn't tell us to be doers of religion in verse 22. He tells us to be doers of the Word. And verse 21 says the Word is implanted. That is, it goes down into your life, into your soil. And where is it implanted? It's implanted in your heart. It's implanted in your soul. If you want to capture what true religion is about, it's in James chapter 1 and verse 12, in the last phrase where it says, those who love him. It's a heart issue. And the whole book of James is about being genuine in your faith. The whole book of James is about being genuine in your relationship with Jesus Christ. The whole book of James is about genuine love. If you love Him, verse 2 says, you will rejoice in trials because those trials are making you more like Jesus. If you love Him, verse 14 says, you will recognize that temptation comes from within you. So you will not put confidence in yourself, self-righteousness. But in Him, verse 18 says, the one who brought you forth to new life, the one who gave you a new heart. If you love Him, verse 21 says, you will receive the Word. And you will prepare your heart to receive it. By clearing the field of your heart. We talked about taking the stumps out last time. Taking the boulders out before the seed can, be, uh, can penetrate the soil. Let me tell you something. For most of us, one of the biggest stumps in our field is self-righteousness. We are all recovering Pharisees. And we have that, pri- that pride in what we do, and we don't want to take that out of our field because we like that. We take pride in that. If we love Him, we'll clear the field of our heart. And if we love Him, we will plow the field of our heart into humility. I shouldn't have to tell you that pride is one of the most subtle sins of all. Came across a quote this week by a fellow by the name of Horatius Bonar. He said, I went to God to confess my coldness, my indifference, and my pride. And then I have to go back to God and repent of my repentance. What's he saying? I came to God to repent of my pride. And then I walked away and thought, that was a good repentance. And I had to turn around and repent of my repentance. That's the subtleness of pride. James says you've got to clear the field of your heart. It's full of all kinds of things that keep the word from penetrating deep inside you. And then you've got to plow up that pride in your heart. 
because we receive the word in humility. James says if you love him, you'll look in the mirror of the word and see who you are and you won't walk away and forget about it. John Bunyan in his great book, Pilgrim's Progress, used this same analogy and he made a great point. I want to share it with you. He said, now the mirror was a one in a thousand mirror. It would present a man one way and with his own features exactly and turn it but another way and it would show one the very face and similitude of the prince of pilgrims himself. Yea, I have talked with those who can tell and have said that they have seen the very crown of thorns upon his head by looking into this mirror. They have therein also seen the holes in his hands and his feet and his side. If you will look into the Word of God, you will see two things very clearly. You will see yourself and you will see Jesus. You will see the problem and you will see the solution. You will see your sin, and you will see your Savior. And James says, if you love Him, you will not walk away and forget. You'll be a doer of the Word and not a hearer only. You will be blessed in what you do. Now the question is, how can I tell if I'm a doer of the Word and not just a doer of religious stuff. Well, let me give you the short answer and then I'll show you how James develops it. The way you can tell you're a doer of the Word is this. It's all about your heart. It's all about your heart. You see, if you try to do the Word without the Word being implanted in your heart, if the word is lying on the surface of your heart amongst all the trees and the stumps and the boulders and the branches and, and all the weeds and all the stuff, if it's laying on the surface of your heart and has not penetrated your heart, guess what? Your actions are going to be surface as well. And if the word is only on the surface of your heart and you're trying to do it and it hasn't really penetrated deep into your heart, then you're going to be doing it for the wrong motives. You're not going to be doing it because you love the Lord. You're going to be doing it to please your spouse. Or you're going to be doing it to please your pastor. Or you're going to be doing it to impress your neighbor. Or you're going to do it to pacify your conscience. Or the greatest deceit of all, you're going to do it to try to impress God. And guess what? This passage tells us he's not impressed. So do you want to know if you're a doer or a hearer only? You want to know if you're religious or real? You want to know if what you're doing is valuable or worthless? Well, James gives us a simple test in verses 26 to 27. It's not comprehensive, but it is conclusive. 
If you flunk this test, you are auditing Christianity. Now let me give you some encouragement. This is a pop quiz. So there's only three questions. No essays. The answers are yes or no. It's a true or false test, my favorite kind. With only three questions. And I used to love it when I was in in school and the teacher would say, you can just grade this yourself right where you sit. Well, you can do that with this test. Three questions, true or false, yes or no. And you can grade it yourself right where you sit. And you will know the answer immediately. Or in keeping with James' analogy, we're going to look in the mirror and we're going to examine three areas of your life. Are you ready? Number one. We're going to look in the mirror of the Word at your words. At your words. Question number one. Are you controlling your tongue? Look at verse 26. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Now James is going to spend nearly an entire chapter on this subject in chapter 3. So I just want to touch on it this morning. James says, look in the mirror and stick out your tongue. And see if you've got a bridle on it. In chapter 3, he says, nobody can tame the tongue, so the best you can do is get a bridle on it, like a horse's bridle. So the question is, are you controlling your tongue, or is your tongue controlling you? Now, the tongue is not the only indicator of true spirituality, but it's one of the most reliable You know why? Because the tongue bone is connected to the heart bone. Listen to what Jesus said. Matthew 15, 18. The things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. Are you controlling your tongue? Some of us are singing backward Christian soldier in this area. We like to pride ourselves in being spiritually mature, but if we honestly look at our tongues, they're getting worse. With gossip, slander, criticism, cursing, James says you can read your Bible, you can go to church, you can pray, you can give your money, you can sing, but if your tongue is wagging out of control, what you're doing is worthless 
What you're doing is deceitful. Because obviously the word has not penetrated your heart. What you're doing is worthless because the word is in your brain, but it has not traveled the 18 inches to your heart. And you're deceiving yourself. Jesus said in Luke 6.45, the mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. Heard about two guys that were having lunch together in a restaurant. One of them said a cuss word in the course of the conversation, got upset and said a cuss word, and then he immediately said, I didn't mean that. The fellow sitting with him took his water glass and filled it to the top. He slammed his fist on the table and the water splashed out. And he said, what came out of that glass is what fills that glass. And what comes out of your mouth is what fills your heart. The tongue is the indicator of your heart. And so James' first question is a tough one. True or false? I am in control of my tongue. There's more. Secondly, he says, look in the mirror. First at your words, second at your works. Here's question number two. Do you care for people who can't pay you back? Look at verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. In the first century, a woman couldn't possess property in her name, so if her husband died, she didn't inherit the house. She didn't inherit the land. She didn't have a life insurance policy on him. So when he died, she was destitute. So widows and orphans were the two categories of people that were the most helpless in society. That's why in Deuteronomy 14, 28 and 29, it tells us that every third year, they took a special tithe from every Jew to care for orphans and widows. Deuteronomy 25 directed landowners at harvest time to only go over their crops once. If they missed something or dropped something, they couldn't go back and get it. Because the widows and orphans could come into the fields and the olive groves and the vineyards and gather what remained. That was the principle we saw in the Old Testament with Boaz and Ruth. He was intentionally having things dropped for her. First thing the church did in an organizational way in Acts chapter 6 was feeding widows. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, it encourages the church to have a list of widows that they care for, but it has qualifications. She has to be over 60 years old. She had to be somebody who was a servant and hospitable and not a gossip. She had to pass question number one. 
she had to be in control of her tongue, and she had to be a person who didn't have a family who could care for her because the first responsibility went to the family, and secondly, the responsibility went to the church. James says here, we're to visit them. That doesn't mean go by and say hi and wave. This is the same word Jesus used in Matthew chapter 25 when he said, you visited me in prison whenever you visited the least of these. What's it mean? It means to care for a person, to provide for a person, to show compassion for a person. According to the United Nations, there are 143 million orphans worldwide. And many in third world countries are not in orphanages. And many of the third world orphanages you wouldn't want to be in. I went last summer to Guatemala and had a profound experience where we went and visited orphanages in Guatemala. We got to see the best of the orphanages. They wouldn't let us in some of the orphanages that we know we're not handling the kids compassionately. But the sad part about Guatemala was probably the majority of the orphans are not in orphanages. They're living on the streets. And the picture I still remember of Guatemala was in Guatemala City when we went down to the city dump. And I can't depict this, what it was like. The pictures don't depict what it was like, but there were vultures flying all over the sky and sitting in the bare trees around us. And I'm not exaggerating when I say there were hundreds of vultures. Huge dump. And little orphans going through the trash, trying to find something valuable to eat, trying to find something valuable to keep because they were living on the streets. In the United States, there are 496,000 orphans. And here's a telling statistic. Focus on the family. I found this there. Their statistic says there are a little over 107,000 children waiting for adoption in the United States and a little over 348,000 churches. That's more than three churches for every child who's waiting for adoption in this country. I would say to you, if we are going to be anti-abortion, we better be pro-adoption.
in Missouri, there are nearly 2,000 children waiting for adoption, and there are nearly 9,000 churches. That's more than four and a half churches for every child. The most compassionate thing you can do for an orphan is adopt them. We've got a program in our church called the Abba Fund. It's to help with the expenses if you want to adopt and can't afford the upfront costs. And if you can't adopt or you don't feel God is leading you to adopt, you can contribute to help others do so. We've got a missions trip this summer back to Guatemala to work among the orphans there. You can go. If you can't go, you can contribute to help support an orphan in a third world country. If you want to be a doer of the word, I challenge you this week, contact the office and say, how can I do something to show compassion to orphans and widows? Why does James say this is a test of true religion? Because it's a hard issue. When you care for orphans and widows, you are caring for somebody who's not going to be able to pay you back. And when you care for orphans and widows, you are showing that you have a heart after God's own heart. Deuteronomy 10.17 says, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. Psalm 68.4 His name is the Lord, a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows. God sets the lonely in families. Hosea 14.2 Forgive all our sins and receive us graciously, for in you the fatherless find compassion. And in Ephesians 1.5, we find that God loves you so much that he adopted you. So I would say you are never more like God than when you adopt a child or care for an orphan or widow in distress. You see, this is a hard issue. When you care for an orphan or a widow, you're caring for somebody who can't pay you back. And that's exactly what God has done for you. That's the nature of grace. That's the nature of mercy. That's the nature of God. You see, when you look at your works in the mirror, this test question kind of strips away your ulterior motives. There's no self-serving angle in this. There's no, I'll scratch your back in this. 
There's no reciprocation in this. It's pure. I'm giving to somebody who will never be able to pay me back. You say, well, Dan, there are 143 million orphans. I can't really make a difference. I'm sure you've heard the illustration of the little boy who was on the beach and the tide had washed a bunch of starfish in on the beach. There were starfish all over the beach, up and down. This little boy was going and picking up starfish that were stuck on the sand and throwing them back out into the ocean. And a man walked by and said, son, there are millions of starfish stuck on the beach. You're not going to make a difference. And that little boy picked up a starfish and threw him back in the ocean and said, I made a difference for that one. You see, when we look at it from our human perspective, we say, I'll never make a difference. But we're told in this passage, this is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God. You see, what matters is what he's seen and what he's seen you're doing and why you're doing it. You're doing it not because you're going to get something back. You're doing it to put a smile on the face of God because he has compassion for those people. Third, look at your words, look at your works, look at your walk. Question number three, are you keeping yourself unstained from the world? I don't have time to cover this final one. So I'm going to come back next time and do a whole message on these seven words. And I think you might be surprised at what I have to say. But for this morning, let's just sort of capsulize what he says here. He says, keep yourself unstained from the world. When Shane was little, he used to come in the house all the time with stains on his pants, just grass stains, whatever else. And his mother's response was always, where have you been? That's an appropriate question. At Easter, he had grass stains on his pants because he was on the back deck rail doing backflips into the yard and not sticking the landing. And I'm sure his mother would not have approved of that either. But when you have a stain, if, if you see me and you say, you got, you got a spaghetti sauce on your tie, where have you been? Oh, I've been to Bella Italia. You know, i got grass stains. Where have you been? I've been in the yard. I've been on the ground. If you have stains of the world... And what's the world? That's Satan's system. We're going to talk about it next time and make it clear what it is and what it isn't. But if you have stains of the world's philosophy all over you, the question is, where have you been? And what have you been doing? Now, it's always a progressive thing. And James 
Later in chapter 4, verse 4, he says, don't be friends with the world. In 1 John 2.15, he says, don't love the world. In Romans 12.2, he says, don't be conformed to the world. And in 1 Corinthians 11.32, he says, God disciplines you so that you will not be condemned with the world. There's the progression. Friends, then I love the world. Then I'm conformed, I become like the world. And then I'm condemned with the world. So the question is, are you keeping yourself unstained by the world? Are you being conformed to the world or are you being transformed by the Word of God? Well, we looked into the mirror today at your words, your works, and your walk. At your conversation, your compassion, and your conduct. How do you look? How do you look? And in the words of verse 25, are you going to be a forgetful hearer or an effectual doer? Here's the pop quiz for true religion. Here's the pop quiz for what God really requires. Here's the pop quiz to show you whether you are a genuine doer of the Word. Number one, can you control your tongue? Number two, Do you care for people who can't pay you back? And number three, are you keeping yourself unstained by the world? Now, if you're honest with me this morning, you would probably say, I don't know. I don't know. I can't really give a yes or no because sometimes I say things that I shouldn't say. And sometimes I ignore needy people and I don't show the compassion of Jesus to them. And sometimes I get sucked into the world's philosophy and end up doing the same old things I used to do. Well, if that's your response, and I think that's an honest response, let me ask you this question. When you look in the mirror and you see those things, what is your reaction to that? What is your reaction when you see that in your life? Do you say, I hate that and I want to change that? Because if so, that is the heart of the doer of the Word. Listen carefully. It's not our perfection that proves our salvation. It's our reaction to our imperfection. What did John Bunyan say? We look in the Word of God and we see ourselves and we're failing. We're failing. But we say, God, I want you to change me. I want you to deal with that. I'm not going to walk away and forget it. I'm going to stay here and let you work in that in my life. We look in there and we see ourselves and we look in there and we see our Savior because He's the answer. 
He was the answer when you got saved, and he's your answer for sanctification in your life as a believer. He's always the answer. He's got to do it because you can't do it yourself. And that's why we're going to close this service with communion and we're going to remember the cross. Because when we look in the Word, we see Jesus and we see Him on the cross and we see the holes in His hands and His feet and His side and realize that's what it cost Him to redeem us and to change us, to give us a new heart and to make us different. And the answer is always to come back to the cross and repent and say, Lord, you need to change me. And allow me to be someone who does your word from my heart, not religious activities. So I'm going to pray, and I'm going to invite you to the table. If you're a believer today, we're going to come and take the bread and the cup and remember the body and blood of our Savior who died for us. Scripture tells us to examine ourselves on this occasion, to look in the mirror and evaluate the areas of our life. And you need to be spending a little time repenting this morning in preparation for coming to the foot of the cross. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word that you tell us is a two-edged sword and it just cuts us open. It lays us bare before you. We can't hide it. You see it all. Lord, thank you for this passage that penetrates into areas that we sometimes like to hide or make excuses for. We like to excuse our tongue. We like to excuse that we're not compassionate to people who really need it. We like to make excuses that we're walking around with stains all over us from the world. Lord, today, I pray that you would draw our hearts back to the foot of the cross. That we would come back to the only solution, our Savior, Jesus. And allow you, Lord, to change our hearts so that our tongues are changed, so that our heart for other people, our compassion is changed, and so that our priorities are changed so that we no longer want to do the things we used to do. We want to please you from our hearts. Lord, work in us today for your glory. We'll give you all the praise in Jesus' name.